Support for the interchange comes from Wonder Capital, the easiest way to invest in large-scale solar projects across the U.S. With Wonder, you can help finance renewable energy while earning up to 7.5% annually. To get started, visit wondercapital.com/gtm. That is Wonder with a U. wondercapital.com/gtm. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. The interchange is also brought to you by Shoals Technologies Group, a global leader in balance of system solutions for solar and storage. Shoals has deployed products on more than 25 gigawatts of solar projects around the world. It is the gold standard for solar and storage. To learn more about how Shoals products can make your project operate at the highest level, visit shoals.com. That's S H O A L S shoals.com. This is the interchange conversations about the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacy. Welcome. We've spent the last few days at GTM Solar Summit in San Diego, and we've seen a pretty remarkable shift at that event—one that was more pronounced than ever this year. It seems like we're talking about storage as much as we're talking about solar. Everyone's got batteries on the brain, and we do too. This week, we're addressing that shift toward batteries in residential solar. Sunrun, a top installer, is at the forefront of the trend. In a market like California, the company is seeing a 20% storage attachment rate to rooftop systems, and it thinks other states are going to soon catch up. So later in the show, we'll talk with Sunrun Chief Policy Officer Ann Hoskins about how Sunrun's rebrand as a grid services provider influences the way it interacts with utilities, regulators, and customers. First, though, my co-host Shale Khan and I caught up at the conference about my own experience thinking about batteries and solar. I just bought a house. I just moved in, first-time homeowner, and Shale and I were just hanging out、uh, in the back room, shooting the breeze about being a first-time homeowner and like all the things that come with it. And then we just hit the record button, realizing that what we were addressing had imminent relevance to some bigger industry solar themes. Yeah. So you have a new house. So you guys. So you and your wife Sandy bought a house in East Boston, right? That's right, near the airport. Okay. And so the question that the 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 energy Twitterati and all of our podcast listeners, I'm sure, are wondering is, does your new house have solar? The answer is no, not yet. We just moved in in February, although it is on the priority list. We're trying to figure out、uh, if it makes sense and how long we're going to be in this particular house. Okay. Interesting. So、um, let's talk about that for one second because I, I have a. A theory about how the world of residential solar and residential energy is changing. Maybe I can use you as a guinea pig. So,、oh, yeah. all right. So you've got a new house. You're six months in, no less than six months into it. Just four or five months into this house, and presumably you're interested in going solar. Oh yes. Okay. So,、uh, what are going to be the factors that will determine whether you actually put solar on your roof? Apart from the obvious ones, like you know, not having shading, for example. But assume assume your house is solar suitable. How are you going to go about figuring out whether to put it on the roof? Well, I'm definitely going to go through a bidding process first. So,、okay. I won't go through like one installer. I definitely want to get bids.、Uh-huh. And what are you looking for in those bids? It, it depends on how the bid came in, right? It's yeah. I'm, I'm pretty. I'm pretty open to any kind of configuration if it looks good. But my bias is toward higher efficiency, higher quality products for sure. Huh. Okay. We'll come back to that.、Um, I just want to. Place a little notation for a minute from now for you saying higher efficiency, higher quality products.、Um, second question: Are you thinking about adding energy storage?、Are、definitely, you, definitely. Yes. Why? Like, well, it, I wouldn't say definitely because you never know like how the pricing will come in. But I figure if I'm, you know. 
paying however many thousands or tens of thousands of dollars for a system, then it makes sense to to put storage on. Meaning to add a few thousand more dollars. Exactly. Yeah. But in the grand scheme of the cost of the solar, it's not it's not that much. Precisely. But why do you want storage in the first place? You don't have, you know, you don't have time of use rates that you're arbitraging. There's probably not a big economic case for it. So what's the purpose? Peace of mind, really. Yeah. From from blackouts? Well, I just had a I just had a major outage on my street the other day. It was almost 15 hours long. The utility wasn't communicating what was going on. I've got a sump pump in my basement where there's a lot of water coming through, and that sump pump wasn't working. I just moved in. I don't yet have battery backup, and I was kind of like freaking out. And I thought peace of mind for me is actually worth the added price. Hmm. So. Uh, you're looking for a reliability solution. Now, that was a 15-hour outage, right? So you wouldn't have been able to run a battery for 15 exactly. hours exactly. At, at full capacity. So right. you could have been down to maybe just your sump minimal pump. load, yeah. your sump pump. Yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. There okay, are, but, there are ba- battery backups for sump pump. I realize that I don't need to buy a, right. a Tesla Powerwall. Or a <laughs> no, but it's not as sexy. Um, so that I think you are a actually a, a pretty perfect example of what I think is starting to happen in general, which is just to step back. Residential solar in the U.S. took off in 2008, 2009-ish because of the offer of immediate and long-term savings, right? There had been a residential solar market before that in the U.S., but it was pretty small. And then the thing that caused it to start really growing rapidly was when companies like Solar City and Sunrun and Sungevity and others were able to finance it and offer you, you know, either zero down or low down uh, payment and then and then savings on day one. So we got into this mindset in solar that I think persists through today from the industry's perspective, which is that cost savings is by far the predominant factor in consumer decision making. And the more savings you can offer, the more solar adoption there will be. And I think that that might actually not be entirely true for a couple of reasons. One is that there's there's some evidence that you at some point get diminishing returns on savings. So you do want to be able to offer customers savings, but the difference between offering 20% savings on the bill and 25% may actually not be enough to get many customers off the fence. The second reason is that we now have all this evidence of customers who are picking something other than the lowest price solution. So a good example of that would be uh, Vikram Agrawal, who's the CEO of Energy Sage, one of the bidding platforms that you might use when you put solar on your roof. He published a piece um, actually on GTM not long ago where they took a bunch of data from uh, their platform where they have customers who put in their information and then solar installers who bid, and they look at what customers ultimately adopt, and they discover that it is often not the lowest price bid. People are not picking the lowest price bid. They're picking what is um, perceived to be the highest quality. So SunPower and LG and Panasonic, for example, are the top three panel manufacturers on their platform, despite the fact that those are definitively not the cheapest products in the market. And they have these little badges that they offer to specific uh, installers or products that can range from lowest cost to most popular to highest quality. And by far, the one that gets the highest adoption is highest quality, well above best value. So when you said, you know, what I'm looking for is the, first of all, highest efficiency and highest quality, not synonymous, right? But you associate them as being synonymous. Right. 
And either way, that's what you're looking for. You're not looking for most possible savings, right? Which I think is true of a lot of people now. It only works in a market where there is some savings. Am I right to assume that if you had an offer that saved you money and an offer that didn't save you money, even if the one that saved you money was what was perceived to be a lower quality product, you probably still would go with it? Yeah, I think that the answer would probably be yes. Right. So I think that that, what that tells us is that you have to be able to offer some savings, but once you're offering some savings, at that point, you may end up providing more value with a more expensive but what is perceived to be more durable or higher quality product. And I think now to bring in the the storage component of it, this also is a lesson for us in how to think about the market for residential energy storage, right? Because the reality is that the residential energy storage market, though it is taking off from a very small base, is not primarily an economically driven market today. There just isn't an economic case for it. Most customers don't have time of use rates they can arbitrage, or if they do, they're not big differentials, so you don't get enough out of that. You have full retail net metering, so there's not much of an incentive to store your solar power and self-consume it. So in the United States, those who are adopting residential energy storage, like you would be, are doing so for peace of mind. But they're willing to spend you know, thousands of dollars to do that as you would be as well. And so that's a very different paradigm from the one in which residential solar grew up. It is, definitely. But I would still need to have a pretty attractive loan product. And you want, would you need a single loan that wraps everything in together and and it needs to save you money on day one? Uh, Not necessarily on day one. But yes, I would need to have a pretty solid pathway to savings. Now, you're probably a more savvy, I would hope you're more savvy than the average consumer, but one of the questions that uh, the average consumer, I think, has a lot, certainly when I've had you know friends and family ask me whether they should go solar or something like that, you get the question a lot of like, is my technology on my roof going to be obsolete in five years? So should I not be signing a 20-year contract for something that is going to, you know, like my computer will be obsolete in three years. And I'm actually worried less about having an obsolete technology. I'm For me, it's all about uh, a problem that is probably an issue that a lot of homeowners in the U.S. face, which is that I might not be in that house for very long. I'm a first-time homeowner. I may end up moving in a couple years somewhere else. And there's a, there's a lot of transience in the United States compared to other areas. And I think that's a a preventative factor from making an immediate decision to invest in solar and then, you know, and solar plus storage. So it's actually less about worries about long-term quality and more about, is this the right time for me, given that I may be in another place where it's more suitable and I may be living there for a longer period of time. Um, And, you know, rates may change. It may be more attractive for me. Equipment prices may drop. And there's always an element of waiting because I understand that this stuff does change year by year and it may actually be more favorable for me in the next place that I live. So those are kind of the determinative factors more so than being worried about being locked into one particular technology. It's just, is this the right time? Knowing that I eventually will get to that purchase, I just have to figure out if it's currently the correct correct uh, investment at this moment. What about the question about kind of having option value for future 
revenue streams. I guess this is something you probably aren't thinking about that much if you really think you're going to move out of the house in a couple of years. But another thing that I would be thinking about is, you know, you're adding these long-term resources for this, the battery, you know, it's going to be 10 years plus for the solar array, it could be 30 years that should have additional value as time goes on because rate structures are going to change in a way where optimizing the battery differently is probably going to provide value. There may be opportunities for aggregated distributed energy resources to play in wholesale markets or to get aggregated to provide some kind of a grid service. And you're sort of setting a bunch of equipment now that has certain limitations to it and has to be operated in certain ways. Um, do you have any worries that you're like missing out on option value for future revenue streams? Yeah, it's actually a pretty major consideration. And when you consider how quickly the power electronics side is evolving, that would be my biggest fear about technology lock-in. No, there, you know, there's no concern about the panels themselves or even the performance of the battery necessarily. It's more about the control system and the software. And so that would be my biggest fear about technology lock-in, yeah. Like basically what you're saying on the software and control side, what you're saying is you're going to have a certain battery controller. You're going to have a software, you know, that is is charging and discharging your battery um, according to whatever parameters it sets right now, probably based around backup power to start. But if some other thing opens up later, you want to have a software platform that allows you to control for time use rates or for your EV charging. If you buy an electric vehicle and add on to that, like... And and the concern is that you won't be able to just upgrade to that. Yeah, I mean, I need a I need to be convinced that I have a modular or future proofed system, something that can be scaled with new in home devices and you know external rate factors that allow me to provide services to the grid. I mean, all that stuff is contributes to my the buying process for me you're thinking ahead to future potential revenue streams as you decide to buy a battery today yeah because i don't think we're that far away from that hmm. i really don't think we're we're that far away i mean it's years away but years away is not very it's not very long <laughs> right well and it's the, the point being it's shorter than the lifetime of the battery oh much shorter yeah right exactly. so sometime it's during the time when you or... have a battery at your house when you have your whatever it is, Powerwall or LG Chem or, or whoever, your there's going to be an opportunity to control it differently. Yeah, well, I mean, the question really is when and what I want that system to do, right? And it may not be an immediate decision. You know, this may not be something that happens right away at my current house. It could be a financial decision that I put off at the, my next place where I know I'm going to be living for a lot longer time and I know that the market may have evolved. But we're having this conversation because there is a new set of customers and customer needs that solar installer, solar solar service providers are starting to grapple with. And one of those companies that has really tried to rebrand itself is Sunrun. And this is a company that, due to higher storage attachment rates, uh, the desire to sell more batteries has labeled itself as a distributed energy services provider, which is also influencing how it talks to utilities and thinks about rate making and the future of 
policy and, and, and how those policies will evolve to benefit someone like me, who in a couple years' time may have a solar storage system, and I wanted to do all these new and interesting things. So I sat down with Ann Hoskins, who is the chief policy officer at Sunrun, and we walked through how this technology change is changing the way we think about policy and regulation. You do have two paths at this point. The, the negative path that we're trying to you know, convince regulators and stakeholders to be, to be cautious about is that we continue down a path where um, folks view us as a problem and start to try to restrict us. And when they do that, us meaning distributed solar, rooftop solar, and storage. And they restrict uh, that in a number of ways. One is they reduce compensation for exports. They challenge net metering. Uh, they propose uh, demand charges or fixed charges in the name of contributing to the overall grid. But the impact of all of those things together is that it will eventually give customers the incentive to pull away from the grid as much as they can. Maybe not full grid defection right away, but now that we have batteries that customers can have along with the solar, they can certainly reduce the amount of electricity that they send back into the grid. So there could be load defection, if not full defection. And then eventually, as battery technology gets better, there could be full defection. So that brings us to the other path, which is the one that I believe has the greatest potential for everyone, and for society, for our customers, and for the utilities. And that's to start to look at solar and storage as part of the solution. It's not the whole solution. You know, we had a panel earlier, right? And there's large-scale solar, and there's our solar and storage, and there's wind. There's all sorts of different energy sources. We're not saying this is the only solution, but we do believe there's a lot of opportunity with solar and storage now at the edge of the grid, at the customer's home, to provide a lot of value to the system. And so if we could encourage that, one, by having fair compensation for the solar energy, fair and stable compensation for the solar energy, incentives initially for the storage so that we can actually get it to scale and get the opportunities and then have enough of it that we can aggregate it, and then look at the values that that can bring when pulled together to avoid some of that investment in transmission and distribution and centralized generation, we believe there's going to be a very strong case to show that society overall is going to benefit And that's going to leave us with, well, what about the utility? And I believe that's the area where regulators should be focusing their energy now. Rather than having all of these value of solar proceedings for a very, very small part of the overall picture, we should be looking at what do we do to enable the the range of resources to be brought to bear so we can have the most efficient system going forward and give the utilities incentive to reduce their costs not have to look at capital investment as their only way that they can grow and um, find a way for as we get more of these distributed resources for them to have a role in managing that system in a competitively neutral way um, that can help it grow. So, you know, we believe that we're at a time where the need is very great for us to do something different. And so this should not be, we should not be approaching this from a view of scarcity of we have to do this so the utility can't or the utility can only do it so we can't. We think that there is so much that needs to be done that we should be able to figure out roles that bring value to society so that 
you know, it's not an issue of subsidy, really, because if you're identifying roles that truly have value, then that's worth it, right? So why put your stake in the ground on this now? So I read the white paper. It's quite good. It's very succinct. It's articulate. I think it paints a very realistic vision of where we're headed. And I mean, no disrespect, but it, it feels like a lot of people have written that white paper. Like it's, it's a vision that a lot of people have articulated, particularly in the last five years. So why is Sunrun articulating this vision now? And what does it say about your strategy? Well, first I can say what's very interesting about this paper is that it was Linduric who had this idea. You know, this is our CEO who's created this company 11 years ago now, uh, has been through the ups and downs of how you start up a solar company, and we're now at a phase where we're in a, a sort of next phase of this company. We're a public company. We have this new technology, you know, the ability to integrate storage and solar. And I think it was really maybe three or four months ago, she was, you know, she's been doing, she she reads an incredible amount. And she really just started thinking deeply about this in a way that she would walk by my office every couple hours and say, oh my gosh, you know, what do you think of this idea? And so you say they're not new ideas, but in a way they are new ideas because they've been talked about conceptually, but here we are a company that is making the investment. You know, about a year ago, we made the decision to really move into grid services. We hired a brilliant um, colleague, Audrey Lee, to run that. We, you know, have put a team together and we're trying very hard, right, to figure out how to move this forward. And we're starting to continue, we still see these challenges in, you know, it's my job, right? But it's, you know, you see these challenges in our 22 states and the District of Columbia, where we have been painted as a problem. And I think maybe the industry let ourselves be painted as a problem. Uh, EEI, has done a masterful job and the utilities of painting us as a problem, but we're not a problem. When we go to work every day, we see this as this incredible opportunity. So really what in my mind is behind this paper is it saying, let's all step back everybody and let's really look what the problem is. The problem is we have climate challenges. We have an issue. We have a situation where the cost of our system is going to escalate significantly, and nobody is talking about that. They're talking about subsidies for distributed solar in states that have less than 0.1% penetration, right? This whole thing is turned up on its head. So that is, in my view, as a person you know, responsible for regulatory and policy for Sunrun, what's powerful about this. It's us stepping forward and saying, we see a better way. We want to be part of the solution. And regulators and policymakers out there, take a look at the big picture, and you will see that resources have got to be spent on working with us to be part of the solution versus continually putting us through proceedings to try to restrict the growth of this valuable resource. So I think that's what's powerful about it. And also, emphasizing, again, the consumer-centric element of this, which, you know, a lot of people are saying they want to be consumer-centric, but we truly are, right? We are focused 100% on residential solar and storage. So we are at the place where, you know, you really are at the center for the consumer. And we have 11 years of experience dealing with consumers, and we think that there's a lot that we can offer to utilities and to policymakers about what that experience is. 
we're going to hit the pause button here really quickly to talk about Wonder Capital and ask you a very simple question. What if you could help businesses across the U.S. go solar while earning up to 7.5% annually? What if, like me, you're still kind of toying with solar and you don't know when the time is right? Uh, or maybe your house isn't appropriate for solar, maybe you're a renter, and you just want to support solar projects. Well, you can with Wonder Capital. Since 2015, individuals have invested tens of millions of dollars using Wonder Capital's solar investment platform. These people have helped finance nearly 200 large-scale solar projects across the U.S., And alongside individual investors, Wonder also works with financial institutions like a prominent Wall Street hedge fund that recently invested over $100 million with Wonder. If you're interested in helping businesses go solar while earning up to 7.5% annually, go to wondercapital.com slash GTM. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com slash GTM. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. This podcast is also brought to you by Scholz Technologies Group, a leading manufacturer of balance of system solutions for solar and storage. We're talking about batteries here, and uh, Scholz is doing a lot more with solar plus storage and storage-only projects. The Scholz slogan is inventing simple. No matter the product, a combiner box, junction box, inline fuse, monitoring system, Scholz makes it with the highest performance standards and a drive toward elegance. Scholz has been serving the solar industry since 1996, and this American company maintains the same passion for quality and innovation as the industry grows, as it grows, and as storage becomes more important. If you're looking to step up your game with the best balance of system solutions in the industry, contact Scholz. You can find out more at Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals.com. I am struck by how much you're talking about storage right now. And it was clear that, uh, you know, when Sunrun sort of reapproached Hawaii, you were selling a lot of batteries and more so than any other installer. And it was like, wow, it was a wake-up call for many of us who were watching the company. Like, wow, storage is going to become a fundamental part of many of these installers. Do you consider yourself a, a storage company as much as a solar company these days i mean with storage now it just opens up so many more pathways and from my purview where again i speak with regulators and i am in these debates over compensation to me it is truly you know it sounds cliche but it really is a game changer because all of the claims that were made against solar as causing a cost shift or, you know, having a benefit just for private, right? The language that was sort of put out there as gospel is easily dispelled now because open the doors, utilities and RTOs, and we can actually clearly provide a benefit for society because we are able to replace a need for another type of investment that ratepayers are going to have to make. And by the way, we're able to be there when you have the next outage, which is happening on way too frequent a basis in the Northeast and uh, along the coast due to climate change. We truly are part of the solution. And we always believed that with solar, which is why I still will say that the studies that have been done purely on solar that showed a value from transmission and distribution and capacity were, were correct, right? It wasn't always recognized, but they were there. Those were that was uh, that was a resource that could serve society, not just the individual. But with storage, we literally can store the the energy and get a signal from the utility and provide it when they need it to create the maximum benefit. But we need the regulators and the utilities to kind of embrace it with us. 
press releases and some activity would suggest that utilities are embracing this, but it can often be a different story in the back rooms of regulatory agencies uh, and when it comes down to you know real regulation and policy making. What's your sense of how utilities are truly embracing this vision? Because many are coming around to this type of vision. I certainly hope so. I know that I think there's a variation across the country, and uh, it certainly helps when you have utility commissioners uh, essentially give direction. Uh, utilities, you know, want to follow the rules and and uh, work with their regulators. And so we've certainly seen in states like New York and California and Rhode Island and Massachusetts, I think, you know, greater engagement and opportunities. But on the other hand, we're still facing pushback, you know, right this week in South Carolina, you know, where customers and, you know, the, the you know, three quarters or two thirds of the legislature, you know, want to see net metering continued. We have faced incredible opposition opposition from Duke Energy, which holds itself out as being open to renewables. They're open to has, renewables. Has made acquisitions in solar and has a very active CNI solar business and is actually making money off of solar. Exactly. They are making money off of solar, but don't embrace the opportunity of third-party competitive residential and commercial providers to empower their customers to be part of this future in South Carolina or in North Carolina for that matter. And so that has been quite disheartening because it's a utility that has the resources uh, that we would like to work with to help people in South Carolina who really want to have some energy independence. They've had a terrible experience with the failed nuclear plants in their state. We're providing a solution, right, a way to diversify the energy system in South Carolina. And we don't know. I mean, we're hopeful that legislative leaders and the governor are going to support an extension of net metering. And so with that, with that base of net metering, there could be an opportunity in the future for these types of grid services. But you need to have that foundational base. So. To me, it's unfortunate that we're still seeing pushback in states where it's very hard to say that it's based on a concern of cost for customers when we have seen what's happened with the nuclear cost overruns in that state. It's, it's very hard to see that as the purpose. And, you know, we have been willing to work with, in that case, with utilities and other states with utilities to look at alternative rate designs. Um, as long as they're rate designs that can work so that customers truly have the option to invest in solar and hopefully solar in storage and then have the ability to make enough of a return so that the you know investment makes sense to them, just like a utility would expect to be able to get some return when they make a capital investment. The South Carolina example is particularly rich because you have customers that are paying, you know, tens of dollars on their utility bill no, for $26, uh, $26 a month <laughs> uh, right. for a plant that will not be ever give them any energy. And we are being told, again, this brings me back to why we wanted to do the paper, is we have been cast as this big problem when, in fact, in a state like South Carolina, we can provide such value to individual customers who really need to find a way to control their energy costs because they've been saddled with this other cost 
But also, if you imagine, if you start to get enough of these systems and to be able to aggregate them, maybe they won't have to build that next gas plant. And wouldn't that be great so that, you know, they could avoid that kind of infrastructure upgrade? So that, to me, is a concern. Um, You know, we see in a state like Florida, we're very excited right now that the commission uh, just gave Sunrun authority to uh, offer equipment leases. Uh, it was a long time coming, and you know we are hopeful that once customers have the ability, which is so important for access to solar, that they have the option for third-party leasing and third-party financing, that once they do and we can really start bringing solar to the Sunshine State and potentially storage, that this is going to be a solution for customers who have faced you know, the tremendous outages they faced last year in hurricane season, right? So, you know, hopefully uh, the utilities down in Florida will step back and see that, yes, our customers really do want to have alternative options. And we want to look at options other than just centralized solar or centralized systems and work with us to figure out what that means in terms of rate designs. What is the worst possible nightmare scenario? I mean, one path, as you outline in the white paper, is that we overbuild infrastructure. We have a bunch of customers who want their own solar and storage, and they either defect load or they completely defect from the grid. And you have customers who are on the grid, you know, now paying more for electricity. Um, there also seems to be a really v- even more vicious policy fight ahead because, you know, the solar industry is looking out for its interests. It seems to me that there's a world in which the utilities dig their heels in even more. The solar industry pushes harder and harder and harder and is clearly going to grow and find new customers. What's the policy result of that? It seems like a, a pretty vicious world. Well, that's why we're pushing path one, right? I mean, we really do think, and I can say I was really happy after the panel I was on earlier at your conference today, a representative from a utility came up to me and said, hey, can can I talk with you about how we could work together to, you know, make sure that we could both find ways to move forward? Because I think some utilities are realizing, particularly ones with like in a California or New York, that this is not going away. And that's what we're trying to say. It's like they, they might be able to slow us down a little, but technology is only going to get better here. The costs are only, and, you know, we had some dra- uh, graphs in the report that show this, but that's just the trend it's going. And there's, you know, natural gas can't get a whole lot cheaper, right? I mean, the, the utilities really benefited in the last 10 years from the ability to sort of mask the increase in the capex they were putting in because the generation prices came down significantly. But that's really where we see this big concern is that unless we can find a way to stop the need to continually overbuild the centralized infrastructure, then it is going to end up being a problem. I don't know if it's going to mean that utilities, some utilities will eventually have real economic problems. Um, I don't think that it's going to be our fault. I think it's going to be the issue that there wasn't sufficient planning. And and that's one of the other things that I've come to realize in the last year now being out in California versus having been on the East Coast. In the East Coast where we had restructured, you know, energy um, markets since like early 2000s, late 99, when that happened and we were going to have competitive generation the words planning and integrated resource planning became taboo, right? We weren't going to plan. This was all going to be competitive. 
I think what we now know from what we're seeing, like in a California or where you're seeing all of these different smaller distributed resources, is we need to plan. And if we could find a way to plan and have everybody at the table and, you know, really figure out before a utility goes ahead and builds something and then comes in after the fact to, you know, ask for cost recovery from a regulatory commission, at which point what are they going to really say, um, that that I think we really can avoid some of it. But you're right. Otherwise, if we keep going the other path, it's probably going to just get more acrimonious. But the customers who have the ability will then move away, whether it's solely from, you know, it's not just um, solar and storage. There's fuel cells. There's going to be other technologies, too, at the edge of the grid and the customer. And so that's why it's so striking that it's a real change from this system that was created over 100 years ago that was all focused on how do you bring centralized generation. We really need to figure out how do you most efficiently um, optimize decentralized generation. And we're just not having that conversation. And that's what we think that this report was intended to do. You know, not to really break out, you know, new research, but just to say, hey, we need to have these conversations because there is value here that's being left, you know, is going to be left on the ground. Um, and if we don't do something about it, the problem is only going to get worse. And Hoskins, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, that's going to do it for us this week, folks. Uh, we've got plenty more good conversations to come from Solar Summit. In the meantime, if you've got a solar experience of your own, good or bad, or if you've got a question that you want us to address on the podcast, record uh, a voice memo on your phone in a quiet spot. Make it kind of short and send it to podcasts at greentechmedia.com and maybe we'll address it on an upcoming show. I'm trying to get more interactivity with our audience and... We definitely want to hear from you. Also, if you like the show, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And uh, send us ideas on Twitter or through email at podcasts at greentechmedia.com if you don't want to do the voice memo thing. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. We appreciate your support. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy from Green Tech Media. Greentech Media.